You're listening to Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, episode 25. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, the podcast that puts Bitcoin knowledge within everyone's reach. As always, I'm your host Josh Humphrey and joining me today is Adam Gibson, maintainer of Join Market, and uh, we're going to talk about coin joins and mixers and privacy and all kinds of stuff. So Adam, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Nice to be yeah. here. So tell us a little about yourself and uh, kind of what your background is and, and what got you into Bitcoin. Sure, yeah. Um, well, my background's a kind of a mixture, a bit of engineering, a bit of teaching, a lot of mathematics and physics, especially mathematics is, is kind of a, a love of mine. And um, yeah, I was, I was a nuclear engineer, software engineer, short, short periods. And uh, as I said, I did quite a bit of teaching as well. Um, in terms of getting interested in Bitcoin, well, it was around like late 2012, early 2013 when I got interested. And um, you know, it was a combination of, of, of both both angles that interested me, both the kind of, uh, you know, open source money and uh, potentially new model for a financial system, as, as crazy as, as an idea as that sounded at the time. It was, it was, it was appealing, but it was only really when I, I, I read the white paper and, and seriously attempted to understand it, which I guess was the beginning of 2013, that I realized the whole cryptography angle and how open source fits in and uh, the sort of parallels with earlier open source distributed systems, you know, things like, I don't know, Wikipedia, BitTorrent, and it sort of all sort of clicked together at that point. And um, I realized this is something very serious and it's, well, it seemed to me to be a, a serious like project that, that is worth getting involved in. And uh, in that first year, I, um, I didn't really do anything particular in terms of Bitcoin apart from just learning about it, learning how to use it, learning how to buy it, and run the wallet and all this sort of stuff. Uh, learning a little bit about the internals, but I, I got sort of interested in a uh, sort of related concept, which we uh, a project we called TLS Notary, which was we were looking at, you know, how you could try to support the concept of decentralized exchange by making the possibility of uh, uh, getting a, a, an independent proof of having visited a, a website, like a bank website. And yeah, it was kind of tangentially related because it was about cryptography and about TLS, how you can create different kinds of signatures. And I sort of more and more dived into the, the cryptography side of things over the, over the last few years. And, uh, and I dived more and more into Bitcoin itself. And, and, and nowadays, uh, in the last few years, I've been really focused on Bitcoin privacy technology, both CoinJoin, which we'll talk about, but also lots of other privacy tech as well. So tell us a little bit about, uh, and I don't know which which one makes more sense to talk about first, CoinJoin, the CoinJoin concept, or specifically about Join Market. Right. Yeah. So if we're going to have a sort of deep dive or, or relatively deep dive into into this stuff, I think we need to start with um, CoinJoin, and we need to start with like Bitcoin transactions because. You know, I know I can't assume that everyone has, knows Bitcoin inside and out, right? So we, we should get the, the, the basics down, I think. Right, uh, exactly. I mean, that's kind of the point of this show yeah, is what yeah. we're thinking. The, <laughs> right. the deeper stuff and trying to distill it down to, yeah, to yeah. an everyday guy. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So I'll I'll try to um, I'll try to keep it high level, but I want to make sure people understand the most critical central points. So uh, the thing to, to to get right in your head with with Bitcoin, it's a bit difficult at first. Is is the kind of mental model of what a transaction is. So uh, one one is used to thinking of transactions in, in a kind of very vague way in, in, in the real world. I think one thinks of it as uh, Alice pays Bob. Um, there may or may not be change involved. I mean, if you're using like a Visa card or something, there's no change. You just make a payment, right? That's it. I pay $100. I pay $5. Um, if you're using cash, then we're all used to the idea of there being change. We make change. And so if I've only got a $100 note, I get the 95 back. So that does happen in Bitcoin. That second model, uh, that cash-like model happens. But it's, it's actually even more, um, there's more to it than that. Um, so think of it like this. It's as if uh, you, when you when you paid uh, five, you, you've got a hundred dollars, and you, you're paying the hundred dollars, and you're getting a new uh, five dollars back. So it's almost as if you took a hundred dollar note. Uh, so say so you go up to a counter at a merchant's, and you you, you, you produce the hundred dollar note, and that hundred dollar note gets destroyed. You know, it's like it's burnt up or it's cut to pieces, and there's two new notes that get created. A ninety, which the merchant, uh, ninety-five, which you keep, and the five note, which the merchant keeps. So obviously, that's not what actually happens with with real notes. But in Bitcoin, it's like that. I, I start off with something called a UTXO, and that that just means unspent transaction output. And the reason it's called an output is because there was a previous transaction that created it. So I've got a single. Let's say I've got a single UTXO worth. Uh, 100 BTC. Okay, it's a bit bit big nowadays, but <laughs> so I've got a hun- <laughs> yeah. I've got 100. But it's easier to use round numbers. I've got 100. Right, BTC. whole numbers are easier. Yeah, whole numbers, yeah. Well, no, no dot, doit, uh, point, whatever. Get that. So I've got 100 BTC UTXO. I create a transaction that creates two more UTXOs. So it's, it's kind of weird this UTXO concept because it. Everything is unspent until it's spent. <laughs> so this transaction, <laughs> right? This 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 is really confusing. By the way, I remember this when I first started learning. But a UTXO is like a coin, but it's like a coin with a variable size. So I've currently got this hundred BTC UTXO. Think of it as a coin, not a Bitcoin. It's a hundred BTC, but it's a coin. And I'm going to make that the input to a new transaction, and there's going to be two outputs. Uh, outputs of the transactions will be new UTXOs or new coins, and I decide what their values are. I just have to make sure they add up to 100 or slightly less. So I'll make one new UTXO, which is 95, and one new UTXO, which is 5. And I'll assign the ownership of that 5 to the merchant, so he gets 5. And I'll assign the ownership of that 95 new UTXO to myself, so I get back 95 in change. So notice in that model that it's like that weird example I gave just a moment ago, that the, the, the 100 BTC UTXO, which I'm consuming in this transaction, is in some sense destroyed. It's destroyed in the sense that it will never be able to be spent again, because the whole point of Bitcoin's blockchain is to prevent double spending. So that will no longer be spendable. And in the future, the 95 and the 5 will be spendable. So they are the new UTXOs that are created. So I'm going into almost painful detail with this. And, and, and the reason is that the, the, the first thing you have to observe is that 
uh, this destruction and creation thing. And that, that's really important. Um, it isn't very important in a typical transaction. The one I just described, the fact that the 100 is destroyed is not, and it's not that I gave the 100 to the, to the merchant. Yeah? Notice the difference. The 100 is destroyed. That fact is not really important because all we really care about is one, one guy got five and the other guy has still got 95. It's still the case. But coin join is a concept um, that makes that destruction element important. So let me explain why. Um, so coin join as a, a phrase was uh, was uh, was introduced by Greg Maxwell in 2013 in a long like uh, post he made on the Bitcoin Talk forum because you know back in the day like 2013 and earlier at least, uh, Bitcoin talk was like the place people chatted about Bitcoin, technical or otherwise. Um, so he made this long post and it was really well explained. But what he was really explaining is something that was always true about Bitcoin, which is that you can um, you can use more than one UTXO or coin from your old transactions and put them as inputs to a new transaction. So instead of I, so I should I should build this up in stages. The next step is <laughs> the same as before. The guy is paying the merchant. He's paying him um, five. But this time, the guy doesn't have a, a UTXO of 100 BTC. He has two UTXOs of 50 BTC. Uh, then, uh, hang, hang on. Uh, well, let, let's say he's, he's spending 60. Yeah. He's not spending yeah. five anymore. He's spending 60. And he's got two UTXOs of size 50. So either one of them on their own is not enough to pay the 60. So he has to spend both. Now, it would be really clunky if he had to spend both of them in separate transactions. So what Bitcoin allows is for him to use both of those 50 BTC UTXOs as input to the same transaction. So two input coins in the same transaction. And then as before, there'll be a 60 output, which is to the merchant. That's what he's paying. And there'll be a 40 output, which is changed back to him. So in this case, even I, 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 I want to get this one right before we do CoinJoin. Even in this case, it's important, the concept of destruction, because ask yourself the question, the 60 which the merchant receives, which of the two input UTXOs did that 60 come from? What's, what's your answer? Now, ask that one more time. So the, he's produced two input UTXOs, both of right. 50 BTC. The merchant has received one UTXO of 60 BTC. Which of the two inputs does the 60 come from? Well, it's a combination of both of them. It's a combination it? of both of them, clearly. And the question barely makes any sense, right? But, but <laughs> no, I understand. It was deliberately a stupid question. But the point is that you can't say, oh, the first input, 50 of that went into the 60, and 10 of the second one went into the 60. I mean, you can say that. But can you see that it doesn't actually, there's no basis to make the distinction? You can't prove that. Right. Well, nah, no, it's not even that. It's just there's no, it doesn't, there is no such distinction, right? Because because the point is that that's why I was talking about destruction. Oh, oh, right. Okay. You see my point, right? Okay. There's, yeah, an, there's, yeah. An, there's another way to say it, which I think is much clearer, which is that Satoshis are not watermarked. You know, if, um, if I had 100 pennies, and I was paying you 60 pennies, and I would have to choose specific 60 specific pennies out of the original set to give to you, right? Okay. But in this model, you because the individual Satoshis, the individual parts of the Bitcoins, don't have like serial numbers, which you can then trace and say, oh, the 60 consists of these specific serial numbers. 
There is no such process, right? See, an, another way of putting it is that there are no such things as Bitcoins. It, 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 it doesn't exist. It's simply a measuring unit. You see, what's happening at the transaction level is that all the verifying nodes are looking at the transaction and the only thing they're checking is that the total of the outputs is strictly less than the total of the inputs. There is no, right, so there is no mapping between the inputs and the outputs. You can say that the first input of 50 went to the merchant and 10 of the second UTXO went to the merchant and the remaining 40 of the second UTXO went to the second change output. You can say that, but there is no actual like place in the code that identifies which of the inputs ends up being in which of the outputs. Is that clear yet? I can... Yeah. Yeah, because because the because both of the inputs are destroyed. Yes, and so then yeah, you you can't you can't know, and there's nothing. Yeah, I I, I get what you're saying. It's it's you're right though. This is a difficult thing to express mm-hmm. in yes. words. It is difficult to express in words, and it's specifically it's like against our new, normal intuition of money, because we either have the intuition like when we're using banks or credit cards that it's just it's just a, a number that gets on a database, right? It's irrelevant. Or we have the intuition like coins and notes, right? And with coins and notes, I mean, notes have serial numbers and coins, I, well, they don't really have serial numbers, but you know, you could, you could, you could check the, there, there would be a way to check a difference between one coin right. and another, right? They're not, they're not literally made of the same atoms. So, so the point here is that this is a subtly but crucially different model because, um, and notice that it only, this distinction only mattered when we had more than one input. Did you notice that? Because obviously, right. if there was only one input, there's no question to ask, right? It all came from that input. So that's that. But with two inputs, if we want to assign which input ended up in which output, we simply cannot make that assignation. It's not, there is no such uh, thing because they're just, it, go on, yeah. Does it, does it help to think of, I'm trying to, I'm just, mm-hmm. my, my hamster wheel, my head spinning here. <laughs> right. What if we uh, think of it, uh, you know, obviously no analogy is perfect, but, uh, like liquid, mm-hmm. right? So we're pouring two cups at yep. the same time as each cup is an input, and yep. you know you have yes. two cups of fifty. You're pouring them at the same time. Yes, good, good. Thought. And there's no way to separate. Yes, that's good. A good thought. Uh, in practice, that's a valid analogy. Obviously, literally at the atomic level, there are dis- distinct atoms in well, each. Sure. But in practice, that's a good way to think of it. Uh, I prefer to, because, you know, my math background is mathematics. I like to think of it. Sure. I just say, oh, it's a many to many mapping. So, you know, <laughs> if, that, if that helps some people, maybe it does. But the other, I think, other nice physical analogy is destruction. Uh, when I was, <coughs> excuse me, when I was in Lisbon, I gave the, the, the physical analogy of imagine you had gold jewelry. You have multiple pieces of gold jewelry, right? And you assign them a certain value. Yeah. Whatever. If you just pour them all in and you just melt them all together, and then you've reforged new pieces of jewelry. You can't really say yeah. that one piece of jewelry corresponded to one old one because all the atoms were just mixed together and every gold atom is the same as every other gold atom, right? Right. So, so that it's in that sense. So what I call that is intrinsic fungibility. And finally, after God knows how many minutes, I'm, I'm actually going to tell you what coin join is. No, that's good. That's good. <laughs> because, because without, yeah. Yeah. Without knowing that, the, the, this, this, I think it kind of glides past people what this really means. So, so Greg, I'll come back to that. So Greg Maxwell's CoinJoin post in 2013 was an attempt to really elucidate how this can be used to improve the fungibility and or privacy of Bitcoin. So the idea is very simple. Uh, instead of just me making a payment 
uh, what we've talked about so far, we have more than one person contribute these input UTXOs to a transaction. So let's say you and me, uh, we're going to each provide, um, uh, this is a completely made up example, but it serves the purpose. We're each going to provide 50 Bitcoins, as in the previous example. Instead of it just being me producing two 50 Bitcoin UTXOs, I'm going to produce one, you're going to produce another. And we're both going to provide them as input to the transaction and then a payment. Let's say for some reason we agree to make the payment of 60 to the merchant happens. And then there's the, the 40 change then would have to be split depending on how what our payment arrangement was. So our changes go out to both of us. Okay, so... The first thing to observe about that description is because of the intrinsic fungibility we've just discussed, um, it is not possible to say, uh, at least given that evidence at least, it's not possible to say who made the payment or in what uh, you know division we made the payment. Actually, this is a bad example. I'll, I'll, I'll change it a little bit. No, because <laughs> it really introduces a whole load of extra complicating factors. So, Okay, real quick though. Go on, go on. I- I wanted to kind of point out for listeners because this this uh, this idea of inputs and change outputs and things, mm-hmm. uh, it, it like you say, it kind of confused me for a while. Mm-hmm. And this is and and I think part of it is part of what's confusing is is this. Um, I talked a while back to Akin Fernandez, and he said, you know, there there are um, downsides to the way we view this and use analogies of money, mm-hmm. and w- when we use wallets. Yes. Um, the the user interface kind of does all of this stuff in the or, or it does it all in the background and we don't see that unless you go looking for it. That's because true. a lot of times you just see at the top the total and yes. it adds all of your UTXOs together and that's what you're seeing as your balance. Absolutely, yeah, and that, of course that's important and and um, uh, the user interface level that's the correct thing to do generally. But perhaps we'll, we'll discuss later, you know, the, the kind of friction between user interface and privacy here that. that arises. But I just wanted to correct that previous like example because I want to introduce CoinJoin sure, sure. yeah, CoinJoin properly. I think that would be a bad example to start with. The, the simplest example okay. to start with would be you give me fifth you, you put in fifty uh, coin UTXO and I put in a fifty BTC UTXO. And let's say the output's really simple. It's two outputs of fifty BTC. So again We've destroyed both of our inputs and we've created two new uh, outputs or UTXOs of 50 BTC each. And the first thing you should observe is that let's say we pay back to ourselves. Yeah, I paid 50 just straight to myself and you paid 50 to yourself. Those two outputs, nobody can know which one of those outputs is ours based on that information because the two inputs are not linked to either of the two outputs separately, right? We talked about mixing or, or, or melting gold or whatever. Those two outputs, nobody can know which one uh, is connected to which input. Now, that sounds all kind of cool because it creates a situation where we don't know who owns what. But we have to make sure we understand the mechanics. Can we do that without trusting each other? Can you and I make that transaction without trusting each other? What do you think? Or if you want me to explain again, let, just let me know. Now, can we make that transaction without trusting each other? Hmm. Should I, did, uh, did you get the, the scenario? Should I describe it again? Or? No, 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 no. I got it. Okay. I'm trying to think here because, yeah, okay. because the potential problem, I guess, well, and I guess it depends on, on what kind of software, what kind of client or whatever you're using mm-hmm. to put those in. But mm-hmm. uh, my concern would be that I'm putting in my 50 mm-hmm. 
how do I guarantee that I get 50 back and that you right. don't swipe that? Right, right, absolutely, yeah. So we, it's important to understand this. So the answer is yes, it is It is completely trustless, but this is, this is why. So what we do when we sign a Bitcoin transaction is we're actually signing our inputs. Uh, sorry, I get this right. We're signing with the key of our input <laughs> the whole transaction. So think of the whole transaction as a message which says these inputs, one, two, three, four, however many inputs, uh, are, are going to provide the, the, the coins and the outputs are going to be precisely this. Uh, address, okay. one, address one, Josh, 50. Address two, Adam, um, 50. Right? So when we sign, we yeah. sign the whole of that message, but we sign it with the key belonging to the individual inputs. So this is the workflow, right? It will start off, let's say I um, ask you for a UTXO. You, and all I'm doing now, I'm just asking you for information. So you give me the, the like the, the, the identifier of your 50 BTC UTXO. Okay. I say, okay, I've got your identifier, your, your, your UTXO. I'm going to build a transaction. And I, oh, and I, I also say to you, please give me an output address where you want to receive your 50 Bitcoin output. So you give me the address as well. Okay. I'm ready now. I can build a transaction. What I do is I put your input, let's say, as the first input, your UTXO 50 BTC Josh input one. Then I build input to my own uh, UTXO, Adam's UTXO 50 BTC, that's input two. So then I build the second half of the transaction, which is the output. So I, I build address one, uh, Josh, whatever it was, 50 BTC, address two, uh, Adam 50 BTC. So I've now built the whole transaction, but it's not signed yet. Nothing can happen with it yet, okay, because we haven't signed it. If we put it on the network, it will be rejected. There needs to be signatures. So I look at that whole transaction and I sign with the key of my input. And I'm happy to do that because I know that if this transaction goes onto the network, it will definitely pay me 50 BTC. Agreed? Agreed. Because my, out my address output is there with 50 BTC, so nothing can go wrong for me, right? So I'm happy, right. even though you, you haven't done anything positive yet, I'm happy to sign, <laughs> sign the whole thing, right? Because I know that I, if it goes through, I'll receive those new coins. If it doesn't go through, I won't have spent anything. So we call this, okay. we call this atomicity, right? The idea that all or nothing. So because, uh, because we have atomicity, it's safe. So when I've done that, at that point, the thing is not, not ready to go onto the network. I've signed it, but you haven't. So the first input is unsigned. And without all the inputs being signed, the whole thing is invalid. So I simply take all that and give it over to you. I send it to you on a, on a communication channel. You look at it all and say, hmm, I receive 50 Bitcoins in the output. Cool, that's fine. It doesn't matter that I'm spending my 50 BTC on the input because I know I'm going to receive it on the output. So then you also sign it. And at that point, the whole thing is signed and it can be broadcast onto the peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin network and it will get mined and we get our coins. Make sense? Yes, yes, I'm with you. Right, so all of that extends naturally to any number of counterparties. We can do it with 10 different people. We can make 10 inputs, 10 outputs, and let's say, again, that they're all 50 BTC, just to keep it simple. Um, and the same sort of atomicity applies. Each party, when they see the transaction, only have to check that the message they're signing includes a correct output payment to themselves. And note, rather crucially, the cool feature that they don't have to know who's getting all the other outputs. So actually, not only can you do this and gain privacy on the blockchain, but you can even keep a lot of privacy from each of your other counterparties in such a coin join. 
Uh, it, it takes some thinking to work out the details, but we don't need to go into great detail. The general idea is that each party only has to check that their, their output's correct and that their input is what they think it is, and they'll be happy to sign. When they've signed, they can give it to anyone else, then they can check and they can sign, and blah, blah, blah. And at the end of this process, somehow, there ends up with a totally fully signed transaction which goes out. So that's CoinJoin. Is it making sense? Yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah, okay, so... So coin join. So the problems you have to address in doing something like this is like, I mean, there's a few problems, but mainly it's about coordination. It's about like, how do we get it so that everyone comes together, meets each other and does this? And how can we make that work trustlessly? Because I mean, pretty obviously, if you had five friends and they were all, you know, fairly tech, well, very tech savvy, then they could all just get together and sort of hack around and do this on their machines and there'd be no problem, right? Uh, you've gained right. some, you gain some privacy on the blockchain. I mean, people can and have done this. People have, I mean, I know of examples of large groups of people getting together and, and doing coin joins in this kind of way. But that's not very scalable, right? You can't just work with friends and what have you. We need a way so that lots of anonymous people, ideally, well, very, very preferably anonymous people across the world can get together, maybe five, maybe 10 of them, ideally like a hundred or 200 of them get together and make such a coin join. So people have spent a long time thinking about different ways of doing this. Um, well, since since that post came out, really, in, in 2013, I mean, probably the first people to jump on it were, were Dark Wallet. You've probably heard of Dark Wallet, maybe? Dark Wallet? Yeah, I think, actually, isn't that with uh, Cody Wilson? Cody Wilson was involved, yeah. I think he was more sort yeah. of doing the sort of management and, and marketing work, which he did a very good job at, by the <laughs> sure. way. Sure. But uh, yeah, it was Amir Taki and some other guys, Pablo, I've got the names. But anyway, um, so they they put this together quite quickly, and they were they were already doing coin joins. I guess end of twenty thirteen, early twenty fourteen, and that was based on one feasible model, which was something like this: that okay, to get people to do this together, what we'll do is we'll have all the users of Dark Wallet uh, kind of. Actually, I don't remember the exact technical details of it, but they, they basically, they had a kind of a lobby server. So the idea of a lobby server was you'd sort of, you'd connect and you'd say, I'm ready to do this coin join. So I'm ready to make this kind of payment and I'll wait for other people who also want to make that kind of payment or make that kind of privacy preserving transaction together with me. And I think they did a model where it was just two counterparties because that's the simplest you could possibly do. So, you know, you can imagine you have some fixed denomination, like you say 0.1 Bitcoins, for example. I said, I'm prepared to do a coin join. Let's just wait until somebody else shows up. When they do, on the lobby server, yeah. On they do, or when they do, then we'll we'll build this transaction together, sign it, and broadcast it. And so they were doing that kind of thing for a while. Uh, another project that had a similar approach, slightly different though, was uh, blockchain.info. Uh, used uh, produced something called Shared Coin or Shared Send. Uh, I think maybe there were two versions of it. And it was similar in, the, in as much as people got together on a particular server and produce coin joins. Now, they were larger. They had a model using large numbers. I don't know if it was 20 or 30 different people in, in the coin join transaction together, but it was a large number. I remember that the initial version of it had um, had a weakness, which may be worth mentioning the, the idea of this weakness, which is that if you do this in, let's say, a, a naive way, it doesn't really gain much privacy. Imagine this. Imagine I want to pay one Bitcoin to Alice and you want to pay two Bitcoins to Bob. Uh, so Alice and Bob are like the recipients. Maybe they're the merchants, yeah? Or maybe I'm paying, okay, you get it. So I want to pay one and you want to pay two. Now those amounts are not the same. 
So if we still use this coin join mechanism, my output is going to be one BTC and your output is going to be two BTC. So when we make the, uh, the payment, obviously I'm going to have to produce enough UTXOs to make up one BTC. And you're going to have to produce as input enough UTXOs to make up two BTC, right? You're going to have to have enough to make your payment, obviously. So we can combine our inputs as normal and we, we can get those outputs. My output is one, your output is two. But because my total output will not be exactly one, I'll also get a change output, a little bit extra. And because your inputs will not add up to exactly two, you'll also get a change output. So we've already got four outputs in that model, right? We've got a one out, a two out, and the two change outputs as well. Correct. And the problem with the structure is it doesn't really do anything for privacy. At least that's a slight exaggeration, but it's generally true because my inputs will equal to one BTC plus my change output, right? Ignoring fees. Yeah. Ignoring, we're going to ignore fees in this. Uh, and, sure. and your inputs are going to equal to two BTC plus your change outputs. It's like the preservation of money theory. So what that means is that anybody looking at that transaction can easily figure out which output is mine and which change output is mine. They'll see that the one plus this change output equals this set of inputs. They might not know me, but they can make that kind of division, right? They can see that that set of inputs paid one plus the change and the other set of inputs paid two plus the other change. So they can completely separate those two payments, right? Right. So you see that's failed to achieve what the original description, which the kind of very simple description we gave at the beginning. At the beginning, we said one guy puts 50 in, the other guy puts 50 in. First guy gets 50 out, the other guy gets 50 out. But because the two outputs were the same size, there was nothing to distinguish them. Yeah. Just like, yeah. uh, just like this thing about destroying. We, we couldn't trace through from the in to the out because there's no way to trace. But the problem is when you use different size amounts, suddenly you're back to square one. Because now, even though you can't theoretically trace the uh, which input goes to which output, if you can add them up, you can easily find out which ones are which anyway. Do you, do you see that uh, that structure? Yes, yes, I see what you're saying. So, and and to to go to to the absurd example, mm -hmm. um, just just for clarity, you know, if if you had a let's say a a ten BTC input, and I had a a one right. BTC input and there was mm -hmm. an output there that was uh, six mm -hmm. yeah. and you know, mm -hmm. an output that was six and a four and then a, a, a 0 0.5 and a 0 0.5. Clearly like my one BTC input could not produce either the six or the four. Exactly. So both of those yeah. came from you and the 0 0.5 and 0 0.5 then by reduction came from me. Yes, it's a very good observation that in the that there are like uh, extreme cases where it's 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 so trivial that you don't even need to describe it. Yeah, it's just obviously that you can split, you can see which one is which. But uh, I think it's important to observe because I think people get a bit confused about this point that even if you build a large transaction, let's say ten different people or twenty different people making payments, and uh -huh. all of their outputs look are, are very complicated, right? There's lots of different sizes, and it's all very complicated. Even so, um, theoretically, I mean, mathematicians will say, oh, it's an exponential time problem to solve this because it subsets, we call it the subset sum problem, where you have a, a set of numbers and you want to know which subsets of the sets are equal. Uh, actually, in practice, it's not really that difficult. So even if you build quite large and complicated looking transactions, it's quite easy for somebody analyzing the blockchain to actually extricate those amounts. So this is a very fundamental issue. Um, 
I've kind of gone a bit off track because I was trying to describe. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to describe like the history a little bit. So blockchain.info, I think, was the second. They had that problem we just described. I think in their first version of it, and I think I'm a bit hazy on the details. I think they might have fixed that problem and, and done a slightly different model of coin join in the second version. But either way, an interesting sort of non-technical point in the history there is they they shut down that service although it was actually doing quite well in terms of people using it. And the general sort of folklore in the community, because I don't actually know what happened, but the general folklore is all blockchain.info shut it down because of regulatory concerns. So this is something mm. that this is something that crops up, you know, that people get interested in this field, but there's especially businesses get a little bit um, wary of, of getting involved. And in. even though, you know, to me it's it's crazy, but all right, their businesses, they have their own logic. Um so that was blockchain.info. Interesting story that. And um, Join Market, I think, was probably the third significant implementation of, of CoinJoin. And basically, it was Chris Belcher who, around about the end of 2014, came up with the idea. And the, the core idea is more important than the details. The core idea is simply that in the models that we've described so far, we've either ignored or or centralized the problem of coordination. So in order to get lots of anonymous people together to do it, you've either had to like have a specific wallet and have everyone use your wallet and then use a server for that wallet, or um, or we've ignored it. Well, there are some other models where people haven't really discussed coordination. But, you know, it is kind of a big deal because, you know, let's say there's a service out there right now and it's like, oh, everyone can do a coin join for one Bitcoin. Well, you have to find people. If you want a large set, we call it an anonymity set of people in the group, you need to find people that are actually going to get involved. So anyway, Chris Belcher's idea was about how about we use a market metal, uh, mechanism to solve the problem of coordination. So in order to, there's a kind of a race condition. I want to do a coin join when I'm paying for my, I don't know, my air, airplane flight. And I need to do it right now. Because, you know, let's say it's BitPay or something and they have a 15 minute window. On the other yeah. hand, uh, there's no, and I, and the, the coin join I want to do is exactly one, you know, 0.1377 BTC, right? So unfortunately, there's nobody around just sitting there waiting to do a coin join for 0.137 BTC, let alone, <laughs> right. right? You see how ludicrous that, that is. If you actually wanted that, it's just something like that. So the way to make it not ludicrous is simple. You just pay them to do that, right? So to, Pay them to do that means other people are going to sit in some message channel server something, and they're going to just sit there saying, I am ready to do a coin join of any amount you like at any time, but I require that you pay me 0.05% of the amount or whatever. Right? So yeah. that, that's how you would create liquidity. I mean, maybe liquidity is a better word than coordination here. Uh, liquidity for coin joins by simply using a market. And so that's a project that's been around for like, I guess, three years now, beginning of 2015. Yeah, three years. Uh, it was actually started on mainnet, I think, mid-2015. But anyway, uh, the idea of, of using a market, it, it seemed to work quite well. Um, there was interest from an early stage and... The, the thing about it is that certainly um, it requires a certain technical expertise to, to use. I mean, we've proved it a little bit recently, but it's generally clearly the case that it hasn't been like, there hasn't been a lot of really high quality like UI work on it. I mean, most people, I think, use it on the command line. 
There is a GUI, but it's limited to like the people who pay for the coin joints. We call them takers. It's, there's a GUI for that, but there isn't a GUI for like the people who offer the coin joints and get paid. That's, that's makers. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's been a success and also not a success. It's a mixed bag, but I mean, I've, I've probably done, I was trying to count it the other day. I, I've done some thousands of coin joints with it. I don't know exactly. There have been like academic papers that have estimated it. And because not many people are doing coin jobs, it's kind of like the only game in town for the last couple of years. So <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, I think there was a paper by um, the Princeton guys, I always forget, Narayanan and some other guys. Uh, and they sort of actually have, well, actually, there's been two academic papers, but they, they sort of looked at it and said, that if people want to do coin joints or Bitcoin, this is what they use, join market and, They've gone through the algorithm and everything. Um, oh, yeah. I suppose it's worth saying if we're just talking about the general experience of Join Market is that it started to get pretty popular with a, a smallish group of people, I guess, in 2016. And as it started to get more popular, we started to see actual attacks. And by attacks, I mean people who were um, trying to, like, uh, I don't mean people who are trying to steal coins. Thankfully, that hasn't happened yet. But people who were um, trying to like snoop on it, if you want to look at it like that. Because after all, if this is a privacy mechanism, you have to really think in depth about you know how are we going to make sure that at every level it's not you're not exposing data. So people often or usually, maybe almost always, connect to it via Tor. Um, what do I mean by it? I mean, in join market, we have to talk to each other, send these signatures across. So we do that um, with end-to-end encryption over IRC servers, and we use multiple servers for redundancy. And as I say, people actually connect to that over Tor. So there's actually like multiple layers of encryption here. And that's all very cool, but uh, and it does give people privacy in what they're doing, but it does mean that um, people can, can connect anonymously, of course. This system, the, the, the kind of philosophical heart of the system is for people to be able to be anonymous. So we're not going to say to people, you can only connect if you're a good actor. Yeah. We can't do that because then we would need to start keeping records. You know, people would have to start, you know, have reputation systems and all that. And okay, you could try and do that, but we don't want to do that. So what we, the situation we face is that if somebody does want to disrupt this, this, this kind of coin joining going on in this market, they just have to kind of become participants of the market. Either they, they sell their liquidity uh, for very low prices or they just, they just try and buy for, uh, and then they cut out and they don't complete the coin join. So there's various ways you can try and, in quotes, attack it. It's not really an attack in the sense of you're losing bitcoins. It's an attack in terms of if they do it right, they're going to try and find out the UTXOs that are used as inputs to all different coin joins. Imagine, mm-hmm. you get it, right? So imagine as an attacker, the main like thing you can do is, oh, I can try and de-anonymize these coin joins. If I know what every UTXO, who it belongs to, or at least I can trace them through the coin joins, then I can figure out by a process of isolation the remaining one. Oh, that's the guy who was, who was creating the coin join. So it is very complicated. I'm sorry, but, but I'm trying to give you a sort of general flavor of, of, of like what's what the experience of, of join market is. But, right. So, so yeah. I mean, as someone who wanted to do one of these coin joins mm-hmm. because you wanted to anonymize this purchase, I mean that that is 
in a sense, the worst thing that can happen to you, I, I guess, mm. second worst thing, worst thing being that you lose your, yeah. your coin. Yeah. The, the second worst thing being that you, you've, you've put this, you've put your Bitcoin in, you've also paid for this service to anonymize you. Yeah. And then one of the people in this party of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ha- has, has then de-anonymized you or everyone or whatever. Yeah, I think it's, I, I probably should have sort of gone from that first principle, yeah, because a lot of people, when they hear the idea, they say, oh, yeah, cool, market mechanism. But if it's anonymous, we've got, in quotes, civil attacks. So civil attacks generally are the idea of if there's no, like, real-world name tied to something, you can always make lots and lots of fake identities, right? So okay. here that definitely applies because I just described how our philosophy was to allow anonymity. So obviously, attackers can make lots and lots of uh, like bots or counterparties in this market. And people have often said when they've heard the idea, yeah, that's cool, but it's like too easy to sibyl. So the thought is something like, I come along, do a coin join, but unfortunately, and I choose, let's say, 10 counterparties to do the coin join with me. But unfortunately, all those 10 are actually the same civil attacker. <laughs> so I don't actually gain any privacy at all from them because they know which output is mine because, right? So so uh, our, our feeling by us, I mean, the guys who sort of actually started coding it in, in 2015 and so on, we, we thought, well, that's true, but in practice, it's there's a couple of things to observe. First, you're, if you're doing this, you're not going to make your privacy worse by doing it. Um, in the very worst case, all the other counterparties are um, owned by one civil attacker. But consider even if there was just like, even if there was only one of the 10 I chose who was not civil but was an honest participant, then I've still gained privacy because they still won't be able to distinguish between the honest guy uh, who's helping me do the coin join and me making the coin join because we will both have equal sized coin join outputs which are not distinguishable on the blockchain. So it's already broken just the, like the civil attack is already broken by one honest participant. And it's also amusing to consider what if there were two groups, let's say the NSA and the Chinese are both on join market and they're, they're, they're creating lots of civil attackers. They're going to conflict with each other, right? Because if, you know, yeah. half of them are from the NSA and half of them are from the Chinese, whatever, then they're not going to be able to find out which output is, is me because they don't know the other guy, right? So. It has to be the absolute most pessimistic scenario for you to not gain any privacy. And then you only don't gain privacy against that attacker. And it's still like everyone else on the blockchain doesn't see the difference. And you're not actually losing anything by doing this transaction, which is, which is why my, my philosophy with join market has always been, this is opportunistic. It's an opportunistic gain in privacy. If you want to use it to get seriously improved let's say you've got some big cold storage chunk of coins and you want to get seriously improved privacy on that whole thing. First of all, you're going to need to spend quite a lot of time because I can tell you whatever mechanism you use, you've got to worry about timing correlation. If you've got like a 100 Bitcoins and you want to anonymize it, it doesn't matter how clever the method is you have. If you do it all in five seconds, (laughs) people are going to see a 100 in and five seconds later, a 100 out. So you have to use time. You have to split the amounts up. Uh, you have to split the amounts up into different pieces. So it isn't at least, at least it isn't totally obvious that there's one input for 100 BTC here and one output for 100 BTC there. So you've got to split up the amounts. You've got to split up the timing. You've got to spend time doing it. So we have a, an algorithm uh, that Chris Belcher 
derived at the beginning, devised at the beginning called the Tumblr algorithm. Uh, Tumblr is kind of related to earlier things that were more centralized mixers. And so there you would, uh, you would try and address those issues. You would stagger the transactions over multiple, uh, many transactions, maybe 10, maybe 15 transactions. You would do lots of different amounts going out to different final destinations. You would have it over a long period of time with waiting in between, randomized. Uh, and also you, we use something called, you may not know this, but there's something uh, called uh, HD like accounts, like BIP32 accounts, which is basically the idea of separating your wallet into, into groups of addresses. You, you could think of them as separate pockets and you sort of move the coins through these different pockets to make sure that you're not like mixing all the coins really brilliantly. And at, at the end, you just reuse the final coin with one of your original coins, which means it's connected anyway, even after all that effort. So you have to avoid that. Yeah. You have to kind of isolate these pockets as well. So it's, it's pretty involved, but just think of it as like moving coins to this large network of coin joins in a sufficiently sophisticated way that at the end you get something which I will not claim is like perfect privacy. That would be completely uh, uh, wrong to, to claim that. But it is it is a, a heck of a lot better than, um, than than you might think, actually, if you do it right. That was a that was a lot of information. Yeah. That was good. Well, it's 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 a pretty huge subject. I mean, this is just just part of it as well because there's yeah. there's lots of other kind of ideas that exist for improving Bitcoin privacy apart from doing coin join in various ways. Um, I should I should I, I think I should go on. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was just. I mean, you may you may want to take the what you were going to say first, but I was going to ask. So you talked about centralized things. So, yeah. so I'm assuming then the way that, that join market works is it's decentralized is users are, are running their own servers of it, I guess. Yeah. There's, there's a subtlety here. Um, the, 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 the problem of coordination is usually solved by having some central server. And the only trick with join market is that the central coordinator, I'm not going to say server, but the central coordinator is the person who pays. So now that means that I, as as I said before, that person who pays is called the taker. So I, as the taker, will ask for, let's say, 10 people to join me. I'll agree with them that I'll pay them a certain small fee. And it is actually ridiculously small nowadays. Um, I'll pay them a small fee. But the privilege I get, I get multiple privileges. Number one, I get the privilege of doing the coin joint exactly when I want, right now. Number two, I get the privilege of choosing the exact amount of the equal sized outputs. Remember, the equal sized outputs are the way we gain privacy. Uh, number three, and maybe this is very important, people don't appreciate it, is I get the privilege of coordinating and constructing the transaction. And because I get that privilege, I actually know for all the other people in the coin joint, I know where their outputs go. So those other people are getting paid, but they are not getting the same level of privacy in the coin join as I am. And that's the trade-off, right? But because we do it like that, it makes the, like the coding of it significantly simpler. Now, in terms of servers, I mentioned it earlier and I'll mention it again. There are like redundant, as in multiple IRC servers, but they're only used to pass end-to-end encrypted messages between the counterparties. Well, also to advertise like fees to say, I'll do a coin join for this fee, but that's public information anyway. But all the actual like signatures and stuff, it all goes under encryption. So those servers could could be in theory replaced with like a peer-to-peer network. It's, to me, that's not a point of centralization. We have multiple servers anyway. 
But the, the, the real point of centralization in the process is that the taker gets to just control everything and he, get, he pays for that privilege. So he's the only one who gets the full privacy effect. Now, I think this naturally leads into the next thing I wanted to say, which is that if we take another model of coin join, uh, which I'm going to call Chaumian blinding, um, which was something also proposed by Greg, Greg Maxwell in, in his original post, this addresses that problem of centralization in a different way. <clears throat> and a recent um, development uh, by NoPara is called Wasabi Wallet. Well, that's what he's calling it now, Wasabi Wallet. He's just recently released it. Uh, is using this specific method. So let me let me describe it in very general terms because it's kind of technical. Okay. The idea of Chalmian server is that um, the server itself does not learn um, the connections between the inputs and the outputs. This is kind of subtle, right? Because the server does actually construct the transaction. So the server does learn the inputs of the people that connect, although they're connecting over Tor, so it's kind of anonymized anyway. It doesn't really matter in theory. But it learns the inputs. Well, what it doesn't learn is it doesn't uh, learn which input corresponds to which output. And it uses basically some crypto magic to achieve that so that somebody connects, provides their input, and then, then later they reconnect and they provide their output. But it's done in such a way that it's still like secure, but the server doesn't know which output corresponds to which input. So that's, that's a different way to solve the same problem that we solved in join market with a market and saying, well, only the taker gets full privacy. Here, everyone gets full privacy, but there's a centralized server that constructs the transaction and it just doesn't know which inputs belong to which output. So that's kind of cool as well, yeah. That's Chaumian, Chaumian server. <laughs> and I should, I should, in all fairness, because, you know, Tim Ruffing's a, a great guy, I should mention, mention Tim Ruffing, who's a, an acad- a German academic, uh, came up with another way of doing the same thing and it's called Coin Shuffle. Um, it basically achieves the same thing where you can't, um, you can't, uh, uh, well, it, it doesn't use a server at all. It, everyone's on a peer to peer network and nobody learns anyone else's outputs. They all have to provide their inputs, but nobody learns whose outputs belongs to who. And again, it's using some crypto magic to achieve that, uh, which is even more complicated. So I won't uh, explain <laughs> it. Yeah. So in, in that situation, is it still uh, like-sized outputs? Yeah, a good question. Uh, all of these models are using equal-sized outputs to gain fungibility. So as we said, I think, early on, the problem is if you don't do that, you get what's called subset sum analysis, where you can just split out, oh, obviously that payment went there and that payment went there because the right. amount set up. So we all, all of those are assuming tacitly that you're using that equal size output model. You still have change outputs, but or you may still have change outputs, but that's okay because they only link to the inputs. They don't link to the, you can just fundamentally, by the design of Bitcoin, you can't distinguish two outputs if they have the same size. So I'm gonna have links uh, in the show notes for listeners uh, to kind of all of this stuff. We'll, we'll find some links so they can read further and I can read further on this stuff um, mm-hmm. at, uh, let's see, this is episode 25, I would believe. So yeah, uh, bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash 25 if you want to check out the show notes. So what's, I guess, what's uh, what's next? What's what's developed? I mean, we talked a little bit about Wasabi. Like what else is out there for, for privacy moving forward? Yeah, um, there's lots of things that are kind of in development at different stages. Um, 
I know, for example, that Samurai Wallet has a number of like approaches to this, including creating fake coin joins, uh, which is a cool idea, as a, at least as an add-on. I mean, in itself, it's not uh, so amazing, but if it's con- c- c- combined with real coin joins, it, it kind of is good. Uh, that, that's confusing. If you start thinking about that, you'll really get confused, which is cool. <laughs> it's, coin join is immensely confusing. Um, also, they, I think they're doing some actual coin join uh, tech. I think they call it Whirlpool, but I won't say anything about it because I didn't manage to find any like uh, documentation that explained the details of what's going on there. But I think it's also yeah. I don't think they've released. <clears throat> I don't think they've released how they're yeah. doing that yet. But, as, right. as far as my understanding, I, I believe so. But but I, I do think it is using equal sized outputs. So there's several other things that I could I could explain as further developments. Um, we may as well just finish off the coin join part because I want to say a few words sure, about yeah, yeah, non coin join things as well because it's not just coin join. Uh, but we may as well just finish off the coin join part by mentioning a recent proposal which I th- I think is interesting to consider because it's different from all that stuff. And this recent proposal was called pay to endpoint, and the idea there is. Um, Imagine that you are going to pay someone, uh, but yeah, and you and you, you your wallet builds a transaction as normal, and you're going to pay them. But they also provide you with an alternative whereby you can coin join with the person you're paying. And this is really cool because, um, at least theoretically, it's really cool because what it means is that if I'm paying you, but you also give me an input. Uh, and then I pay out to you and your output will be how much I'm paying you plus your input, right? Because obviously you have to get your own coins back, right? So in that model, what's interesting is we don't have the subset sum problem anymore. We have a, we have a situation where, let me just break it down for you with an example so you see it. Like suppose I've got five Bitcoins and I want to pay you uh, one and you provide me uh, another input of two, it, Coin. So I've got five as the input. You've got two as an input. Uh, I want to pay, what did I say? One. So I've got to give you one plus the, the two you already gave me. So I've got to give you an output of three. And then I get my change of uh, four. So in that transaction, it doesn't look anything like a coin join that we just described because there are not any equal sized outputs. And yet we don't have the subset sum problem because we don't have multiple people making payments. So there aren't any subsets. And if there were two people making payments, then you get two subsets. But there's only there's only one payment going on here. So actually, there's no problem of subset sum, and we can build a coin join that just looks like an ordinary payment. In theory, it depends on the details. And this has a number of nice features, such as the fact that because you're producing one of your inputs, uh, you, because you're using one of your UTXOs as input, you're consuming or destroying that, and then you're creating one new output for yourself. So your net number of additional UTXOs is zero. Do you see what I mean? You've destroyed one of your UTXOs and you created a new one for yourself. Yeah. Does that, does yeah. that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm I'm trying to I'm a visual uh, person, so yeah. I'm trying to draw this out on a piece of yeah. paper here yeah, absolutely. to make sure I understand. Uh, absolutely. It. I'm waving my hands in the air to try and sort of visualize it myself. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, yeah, you've got two ins. One in is five, which is from me. One in is, what uh-huh. did we say? Uh, two, which is from you. Two. And, and the end goal, right, if we were doing a direct payment and bypassing all of this, the end goal is what you're paying me. Wow. Okay. And so therefore, I give you sure. an out of three, don't I? I give you an output of three because I need to give you your two back plus the one I'm paying you, right? 
and the the other one and then, will be a change back to me of four, right? Okay. So it balances, right? Yeah, you see. I get you. And so if you look at that picture, you see that you've put in one UTXO and you've taken out one UTXO. So your the net change in your number of UTXOs is zero. You've destroyed one, you've created one, yeah? Yeah. Right, and that's different. Notice, if you're a merchant and you're receiving payments, every time you receive a payment, you have to get a UTXO, new UTXO, don't you? So, so yeah. if you're like Coinbase and you receive, I don't know, 5,000 payments in a day or whatever, you, you've got suddenly got 5,000 new UTXOs that you've got to deal with. You've got to consolidate them or you've got to like worry about them, whatever. Here, you don't. You actually just keep the same number of UTXOs, which is really cool. Uh, I, I'm only saying that. That's a kind of a technical thing. I maybe maybe the listeners are not actually interested in that, but I think you know it's kind of like if you're a merchant, that would be an interesting feature. That's something to bear in mind. But but generally, the idea yeah. is the, there are two nice things about this: that it's a coin join, which means it. Ah, I didn't actually talk about this. Maybe we should talk about this. It breaks a wallet clustering. We'll, we'll talk about that next. I'll, I'll explain what that is in a minute. It, break, okay. it breaks wallet clustering, and. Um, the cool thing is it doesn't look weird. It doesn't look like a coin join. It just looks like a payment because, by the way, it's very – maybe that one doesn't because it depends on the amounts, but usually um, it will look like a payment because um, because it's very common for people to make payments with two UTXOs. They often don't have everything in one UTXO. They often need to consume multiple, yeah? And yeah. every payment has one output and one change, or almost every payment. So it looks totally normal, right? which is really fantastic right. because what we want to achieve ideally is we want to achieve mechanisms that uh, improve fungibility but are not obviously flaggable as a particular type, which then, you know, people who are doing chain analysis can start saying, oh, we'll look at those, they're different, we can separate them out. We don't want them to be, we want them to be confused, basically. Right. Okay, so there are a number of problems with that proposal. It is, I think it's a little bit limited, but it is a really interesting proposal. Let's say that. Now, I do want to talk about wallet clustering because that's kind of fundamental to all this. So what is wallet clustering? Um, generally, uh, the idea is that if you want to trace um, the ownership of different coins, obviously at the base level, it doesn't work. If people don't reuse the same address and again and again, then you're just seeing, oh, this coin went from this address to this address, then it went to that address. And if every time it's new, it doesn't, you're not learning anything because so obviously people who try to do what's called blockchain analysis, uh, have to make some assumptions. And the most like core, the cornerstone assumption, at least it has been that when you see a transaction that uses multiple different UTXOs on the input, you assume that they're all owned by the same person. And that's actually a very powerful uh, assumption if it's correct. If it's correct, then every time you see two UTXOs used in the same transaction, you can assume they're the same, but that's transitive. In other words, um, if you then see that an output from that is co-used with another output in another transaction in the future, then they all end up getting into the same group. And then that continues. And what you see, if you look at uh, websites like WalletExplorer.com or nowadays, I think OXT.me does this as well. There are some public websites that do this a little bit is they will show you big groups of addresses. And they'll say all of these addresses we deduce are actually owned by the same party. 
using this wallet clustering heuristic or assumption that you know two things if they're using the same input uh, inputs in the same TX are the same owner. So they, they, they use the, these heuristics to try and generate these big clusters of addresses that are all owned by the same uh, counterparty, and that's certainly not the only thing they do. They have several other like tools of the trade that they use to try and associate addresses and say, oh yeah, they're both owned by the same person. But it's like the main one. And the, the good thing about CoinJoin is it breaks that assumption. So when I go on to like, I'm not sure if Wallet Explorer is really working. I think it is still working. But if I go on there and I put in one of my join market addresses, <clears throat> it's kind of broken, right? Because it's got two choices. It either uses that assumption and assumes that every input that is co-used in the same transaction is owned by the same party, then it gets the wrong answer because what it gets is a huge cluster of addresses of me plus all the other people that I've done coin joins with. It actually becomes huge, yeah? And it gets bigger over time. Yeah. Or they either make that assumption or they look at the transaction and say, oh, that's a coin join because it has equal sized outputs. And if they flag it as a coin join, they can just say, well, you know what? We don't know who the inputs are there. Uh, so we're just not going to include that in our analysis. So in that case, obviously, that's a win as well. But even better is if we make these kind of coin joins which don't look like coin joins because then they, they, they have no choice. They either throw out the common ownership assumption entirely or they, you know, they, they admit sort of admit defeat. So there's lots of, uh, lots of details to how blockchain analysis works. I think it's fair to say that people are, well, I'm pretty sure it's fair to say that people are overestimating the power of it nowadays. A lot of what those companies I think are doing is making kind of real world connections. So they're doing things like going on uh, exchanges and saying, oh, uh, this exchange's records tells me that this address was, a, was, you know, the coins came from this address and then, Maybe six months later, they find they find they, they try to trace through, and they say, "Well, eighty percent of those coins ended up on Coinbase or Binance or something, right?" So that's a kind of a it's not really proper blockchain analysis. So they, I think what they're doing is a mixture of all different techniques. Uh, they can use timing. They can use they can in theory use the peer to peer network as well. They can like try and look at stuff happening on the, the Bitcoin network. I mean that's. That certainly is happening. There are civil nodes on the Bitcoin network that are trying to snoop transactions. So they've got lots of vectors of attack. But this specific thing of like tracing on the blockchain is at least heavily damaged by CoinJoin, at the very least, I would, I would say. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we've talked for a long time about CoinJoin. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right it's good stuff in it and we also talked a lot about fundamental mm -hmm. ideas of utxo sets and and yeah. um um change outputs and things that i think really are kind of that next step of understanding for a lot of people it is yeah it is confusing like if i was going to go talk to my dad about bitcoin which <laughs> is i mean he's just not there you know <laughs> I, I gave him my copy of the bitcoin standard he's he's reading through that so i'm hoping he's going to get something out of that but i I would not start with like UTXOs. UTXO sets. It's <laughs> <laughs> not where I would start. Absolutely. Um, and the nice thing is, if you think about it, the probably this is optimistic, but let's say in a year or two, lightning gets a lot of traction and, and wallets, all the like ordinary people's wallets have lightning, then they'll never have to learn about UTXO. Just like, just like today. I mean, who knows about 
TLS record formats or, or, or TLS cipher suites or something. I mean, you know, the, the, the core level like protocols or HTTP or TLS, you know, those things that, or IP that are used uh, every day by everyone. I mean, nobody knows how those things work and that's fine, right? I mean, yeah. the good thing about Lightning is UTXO is totally abstracted away. It's irrelevant. Or well, maybe on channel open and close, but when you make a Lightning right. payment, there's no, there's no involvement of UTXOs. It's a clunky thing, but I think it's clunky and it's, it is clunky, but it's there for a reason. You know, it, it's important for like, I don't know, state isolation or something it, it, for scalability. Um, well, this is one of those very big debates in the blockchain world, you know, UTXO, UTXO model versus account model, but. Again, yeah, as you say, nobody wants to know about all this stuff. They, they just want to make a payment. Right? <laughs> so, so let's talk for a second, though, about um, these ideas of, of UTXO bloat and UTXO consolidate. You were talking about Coinbase and, and merchants having this, and and um, you know when you were talking about the yeah, the pay to endpoint, uh, the pay to endpoint. That's right. So. Um, you know, you are creating a new UTXO every time, and the UTXO set has to be kept mm. by every node, right? right? Yeah. So, so there's this trade-off of creating a bigger UTXO set um, has the potential to increase privacy, but you're yes. also, um, yes, kind of creating a bog down on the yeah. network potential. Absolutely, as yeah, well. it's an important observation that that, um, and I think this is. I won't say it's totally generic, but it's quite a generic observation that a very large swathe of different privacy technologies, and not only in Bitcoin, by the way, but a very large swathe of them operate on a kind of noise principle where you basically create a lot of other stuff to prevent the actual signal of, like, in this case, the signal is where your coin's going, yeah? You're trying to prevent that signal being, um, uh, being readable from all the noise around it. So that, that's a crude way of putting it, but in the case of uh, an equal amount coin join, you're, you're creating multiple equal amounts to try and obscure who. And you're right. I mean, generally speaking, if people use something like join market at large scale, it would mean huge amounts of extra space usage because the, precisely because of the, the it's, it's intrinsic to the model. The model is that other people help you do your payment. So they make what are effectively fake payments to themselves of exactly uh, equal the amount of your payment. And so that is a lot of extra UTXOs being created in each uh, joint market transaction. So you're absolutely right that, that these kinds of privacy technologies that create larger, um, that, that use noise effectively are, are scalability losses. And, and we're not going to be able to do that um, at huge scale anyway. So maybe this is a natural lead-in. Perhaps this is the last like area we, we could discuss is, is like the non-coin join approaches to, to privacy in, in Bitcoin. Would, should we go that, that direction? Unless you've got more, more questions about coin join, I'm happy to answer them. No, I think we've, I think we've covered that pretty sufficiently, at least for an audio format. I think mm -hmm. to, to go beyond that, we're going to have to use diagrams. <laughs> Uh, probably not the best yeah, format. Good, good question, good so, yeah, question about scalability. It's absolutely spot on. Yeah. Okay. So, so I'm going to talk about, um, yeah. So I think, I think we should talk about the other approaches to privacy that people have looked into. Um, at least let's confining it to Bitcoin for now, though we could talk about altcoins as well. So in Bitcoin itself, um, there's a whole set of stuff. I mean, I think the first like building block that people, if they're interested, should think about 
is the atomic swap idea. So the atomic swap idea is it's possible to make two... We talked earlier about how a coin join is atomic uh, because a Bitcoin transaction is atomic. It either all goes through or it doesn't go through at all. So it's kind of safe like that. So what an atomic swap is, it's trying to extend that over more than one transaction. And the idea is, you know, just very vaguely that there's some kind of secret value. And when one of the transactions is broadcast, the secret value is broadcast, and that's what unlocks the other transaction. So it can also be broadcast. So given that mechanism, you can, uh, you can effectively make transactions be not just directly on chain, so to speak. So one way you could use that is you could, with a little bit of clever shenanigans I don't want to go into, basically make it so that like I pay you one BTC in a transaction and you pay me one BTC in another transaction, completely separate with different histories. Um, the, and the two transactions are atomic, but we can make it so that there's no like weird custom scripts or secret values like hash values on the... Oh, excuse me. Uh, excuse me. In the transactions, so it's not possible to when when somebody looks at the blockchain that they'll obviously see all the transactions, but they won't see that those two uh, those two transactions are obviously linked. Now, to be fair, they are kind of still obviously linked if they both have the same output amount one BTC. That's arguable, but it is a very important consideration. So, so it is possible to do that, and if you think about it. Actually, it's not so easy to, to, to understand without sort of going into a long description, but, but you can imagine, I hope, at least that achieving uh, privacy that way might actually use a lot less space on the blockchain. Um, because, because sure. I, right? Because I described how, like, if you want to do coin join properly or join market, you'd need some mechanism where you go through multiple layers, pockets, different amounts and different, uh, timing and so on. So yeah, I mean, I don't want to like say it's a brilliant idea, but you certainly could try to gain privacy. And we call that kind of coin swap, that idea that you could gain privacy by just uh, making two transactions atomic. So what it kind of ends up is with your one Bitcoin having my history and my one Bitcoin having your history. Okay, so that's kind of cool, but but there's, there's all kinds of like details there we're not going to go into. But the, the same idea can be extended in... In the way that it can be done off the blockchain. And that's what Lightning Network fundamentally does. I mean, Lightning Network is kind of a combination of two clever ideas. One of them is the payment channel where you update transactions to give uh, the other party more and more money over time, let's say, or vice versa. And but then there's the other part, which is the, the routing of transactions through multiple hops. And that part uses that atomic swap idea. So we can gain um, privacy by using this kind of atomic swap approach where the final like destination of the coins, let's say after you've done stuff on Lightning and it comes out onto the blockchain, the final destination of the coins is unconnected uh, on the blockchain's own history from the original payment of the coins. So that is obviously a very powerful uh, idea for privacy and, and Lightning Network at the moment is like the canonical example. It's the one that has the full like fleshing out of the idea. So, so a lot of people are quite excited and I think quite rightly about Lightning itself as a way of improving privacy. It has like, uh, trade offs 
But I think we could say that for ordinary everyday payments, the trade-offs are heavily in favor of using it. Um, so that um, if you make lots of little payments, uh, doing it this way involves no permanent blockchain trace. If you want to use Lightning for uh, very large payments or let's say for kind of, if you wanted to use it to kind of effectively mix some large block of Bitcoins, people have been looking into that, but I suspect they're going to find that there are some downsides. Um, the thing about Lightning is you have to have uh, capacity in the right places in order to make a certain payment work. So if I just want to move my coins into Lightning Network in one location and out at another location, I have to have capacity in the right directions on each side, in, inbound on one side and outbound on the other side. So there are complications there. The other thing to observe about Lightning's privacy is it's a very different um, whole scenario from, from what we're used to with Bitcoin. So there are routes which are public and there are amounts which are public. There are um, also issues like if you have, especially maybe if you have short routes, you have to think about uh, civil nodes. You have to think about what if somebody's trying to use their channel to snoop. You have to look at uh, the fact that the pre-images that lock together all the uh, all the hops on the route uh, are currently at least uh, are the same value. So there's possible linkage there. And there are other things too. I mean, the fact that it's an online protocol, so people have to be kind of connected online. Um, I I could probably there there are probably other other things you could say, but. Overall, it seems to be a very, like a really excellent model, at least for ordinary everyday payments, but perhaps not for like your cold storage, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are other, uh, maybe just finally mention a couple of other like ideas for privacy that are very promising in different ways. One of them is confidential transactions. So confidential transactions is like, very simple to explain its intent. Its intent is simply to make each output amount uh, on the blockchain be blinded and be invisible. And the alert listener who's still listening after all this time, well done if you're still here. <laughs> the alert listener will notice that that solves a whole bunch of the problems that we just dis discussed early on. Yeah. So we discussed the problem that if we want to make the output amounts equal, we have the problem that we have to coordinate and find lots of other people who are prepared to do the coin join of that ex exact amount. And we discussed the problem that if the amount output amounts are not equal, then we get something called subset sum analysis, which kind of immediately removes the privacy effect. So confidential transactions would solve that. So it's important to understand that confidential transactions would be very much kind of uh, would naturally marry together with coin join. The two things together are extremely powerful because it would mean that I could make a payment and you could make a payment any payment of any amount, we could just do it together in the same transaction and nobody would have any clue that it was happening and nobody would be able to disentangle which payment went to which destination. <clears throat> so confidential transactions would be an extremely powerful uh, improvement to Bitcoin's privacy. Uh, unfortunately, it is a very big change in Bitcoin. Um, it, is, it has been implemented by uh, Blockstream in their Elements project I think initially in 2015, and it is, I think, currently coming into a live state on, on Liquid around now. So that's cool. It's also live on the Monero blockchain. They implemented uh, CT, the same, almost exactly the same um, uh, crypto stuff in it. 
sometime recently they implemented it, maybe last year sometime, I think, yeah. So it, it's there, it's really cool, but it, um, it does require kind of a very big change and there's some debate around certain details around it. I won't get into it, but there's some debate about, yeah, go on. Well, so how does verification work then if you, right. you know, if a node can't see? Right, right. Good question. So fundamentally, it's, it's based on the, uh, an idea called a homomorphic commitment. And what that idea is, is that, um, when I take a number A and a number B, uh, obviously if it's plain text, I can just add them up. But if, if I hide each of them, you know, I do some, I, I do some operation on A and I get, blinded A, I do some operation on B, I get blinded B. Those those two blinded values have to be totally random, right? So how can you possibly know that when you add them together, you get the right output, yeah? Well, the answer is that um, there are certain forms of um, blinding that preserve the property of addition. So even though like um, A is is no longer, let's say A is three and B is seven, just to make it concrete. So three, three gets replaced with a random number, Actually, it's a huge random number, like 32 bytes, right? But three gets replaced with a random number. B gets replaced with a random number. And then I output a random number that I, I, underneath the hood, like before it gets blinded, I take the three and seven and add it to 10, uh, to get 10. And I blind that and I make another third random number. But this special kind of randomization has the property that the randomized forms add together to to give the, the right random output co- corresponding to 10. So even though you don't know what those, ra- you don't know what numbers those random values correspond to, you know that they add up to the right random number. Do, do you see what I mean? Is that, it's, it's, uh, that's much easier on a whiteboard yeah. than, than uh, Right, right, right. <laughs> well, that's why I'm, I've got my notepad out here. I'm writing it out. Okay, so let's, let's maybe we can say it this way. Yeah. So we have inputs of, uh, three and seven that correspond to A and B. We before we randomize them, we add them together. We know that that makes ten. We assign that as C. Mm-hmm. So we know that then on the so then once we randomize all of that, we know that the the program knows or the software or whatever uh, understands that randomized A plus randomized yes. B equals randomized very good, C. Very good. Yeah, I was going to say like uh, using function like F. A plus F B equals F brackets A plus B, but but your way of saying it's better. (laughs) (laughs) Randomized A plus randomized B is equal to randomized A plus B, and that is verifiable publicly. Yeah, and of course, it's absolutely critical that we are sure that that equation, randomized A plus randomized B equals randomized uh, C, only holds if A plus B equals C. Yeah, we have to be sure that that's true, otherwise the system is not secure. And there's been some sort of, maybe it's too theoretical, but there's been some debate about, you know, the exact cryptographic assumptions behind that statement. Because the problem is if that statement is not true, that if it was possible for an attacker to come up with some weird values of A, B, and C, uh, such that even though A plus B is not C, nevertheless, randomized A plus randomized B equals randomized C. If he's able to do that, then he's able to print coins. And even worse, he's able to print coins in a way that nobody else knows it's happened. So the blinding effect creates, it's almost like it ratchets up the, the security requirement, you know? So I, I feel like it's not really correct to say that, as some people say that, oh, well, it's okay because it's the same assumption. It's, it, uh, I don't want to get into this. I've gone, I've gone too, too technical. Sorry. <laughs> you, but you've got, you've got the <laughs> no, basic no, idea and, and it's important to observe that 
uh, also that confidential transactions in exactly the same pattern as I've already mentioned with CoinJoin, that the addition of noise makes it use more space. Because you randomize, let's say, the number three into a 32-byte random number, it has to be a large random number. Otherwise, it's too small of a group and somebody can just figure it out by brute force. So you make these large random numbers. And actually, you do a hell of a lot more things as well. I won't go into it. Range proofs, whatever. It means that a confidential transaction transaction uses more space than an ordinary Bitcoin transaction. And so consequently, that's another kind of trade-off one has to bear in mind. I mean, in Monero, for example, they don't, they just accept that and they just make very large transactions. Gotcha. Yeah. So confidential transactions is another very interesting potential. Uh, we'll see. Well, nobody really knows if it's ever going to be part of Bitcoin or not, or, you know, there's always the sidechain thing as well. I, I'd love to see it on a, on a sidechain, but we don't seem to have a good sidechain mechanism. That would, would have been my ideal scenario because then we could use it, but, you know, we isolate it somehow. Uh, and then, and yeah. yeah, because, you know, scalability and also potentially security, but mainly scalability is, is an issue. So that's one angle. The other angle, which uh, I think is less known by the non-technical community, but which I personally think is very, very important, is within the whole thing of Schnorr signatures, which the cool thing about Schnorr signatures is that they... Uh, they, uh, they gain, uh, they're, they're a scalability improvement. Okay. Because if we can use them in the aggregated form, the basic idea to get rid of all the technical mumbo jumbo, the tech, the basic idea is that multiple signatures end up being squashed into one signature. And signatures are big. They're like between 64 and 73 bytes, depending on how you encode them. So you've got this big object in a Bitcoin transaction and you've got lots of them at the moment. You know, some transactions even have like 50 or more, but you don't want that. What you want is just one signature. That would be cool. That would save so much space. So although it's a bit complicated, we're moving hopefully towards a world in which we use Schnorr signatures for transactions and we save a lot of space. But the fantastic thing is because they have another property, which we call linearity, it means that we can do a lot of um, clever tricks with Schnorr signatures that we can't do with the current ECDSA signature. And what, um, Andrew Polstra, who, who's also a Blockstream guy, he's been like looking at this for some time and he's come up with this idea he calls scriptless scripts. It's a kind of a funny name, but what he's really talking about is how you could embed logic like we currently have in scripts, things like, you know, multi-signature or hash time not contracts, which is the atomic swap thing. We can embed so, at least some aspects of those uh, scripts inside signatures in such a way that A, they don't take up any more space and B, uh, they're totally uh, invisible to the outside world. They're not just invisible in the sense that you can't see them without doing a lot of computation, but they're invisible in the sense that it is theoretically impossible to find them. Like, because I can always assert that any given like script that I'm coming up with that I've embedded in this signature is there and I can, in quotes, prove it to you by producing a number. But actually, so could anyone else, and they could produce a different uh, script and, and pr imp prove in quotes to you that that script was embedded. So in a fundamental sense, they're completely hidden. So a concrete example, because that's a bit abstract, but a concrete example of what I mean is that what I described to you earlier as a coin swap, where I pay you one Bitcoin, you pay me one Bitcoin in different transactions that are not connected on the blockchain. And we can do this in the Schnorr signature with this script, the script mechanism 
where basically the secret is embedded in the signature. And when you broadcast your transaction, I and only I can extract that secret and broadcast my second transaction. And all of that can happen just with a single Schnorr signature on the blockchain, which just looks like any other transaction and it doesn't use any more space. So um, this is one of those few cases where we, uh, as I put it, we cut the Gordian knot of scaling versus privacy. <laughs> yeah, because the, what I described earlier about that mechanism of you usually gain privacy by adding noise. There are actually, there's actually a, um, protocols like, uh, it's called like Vuvuzela, which is kind of a funny name, like that South African, you know, that South African thing where it makes noise, you know? Yeah. The Vuvuzela, wow. yeah, the Vuvuzela yeah. protocol is an idea where you just add tons and tons of noise to the traffic on the network to make it impossible to find a signal. So, so it's the same thing here. Like, but we can cut that Gordian knot. We can gain the privacy without adding all the extra, uh, data, which uses up blockchain space. If we can take the, the atomic mechanisms like off the, the blockchain. So Lightning does this, right? Because it has these off-chain routing, which sends coins, uh, between different participants without anything on the blockchain. And the same thing here with scriptless scripts, which is the idea that you embed the data in a signature without taking up any more space. It's in, effectively off the blockchain. It's a, a negotiation between you and me as participants. It's still cryptographically secure and it hooks into the blockchain, but it doesn't actually use up transaction space. So those, those kind of angles, I think, are the right ones to be aiming for. Yeah. But which I don't mean that, that I think, I think CoinJoin is kind of fundamental and I think CoinJoin is going to continue to be an important uh, part of the mix. CT or confidential transactions would, we really hope it will happen, but there's kind of question marks about how it will happen. Um, even though there's been big improvements on it recently, Bulletproofs you've probably heard of is an improvement that squashes down the size of confidential transactions, but they're still bigger than ordinary ones at least. Well, again, it kind of depends if we aggregate them. That's a whole other discussion. Uh, yeah, so there's CT's cool, but I really like off-blockchain stuff. So Lightning is really cool. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a complicated picture on painting, right? There's multiple different techs. Some of them are already uh, deployed. Some are kind of being deployed and some of them are still in development, um, but they're all good. Uh, yeah, and I would just, my, my final thought for people would be just like, don't don't, don't assume that Bitcoin is perfectly traceable. I, I mentioned Andrew Polstra earlier, and I, I think I've already said this on another podcast, but I'll say it again. Uh, he gave a talk in Boston recently, um, and the last line of his talk was something like, uh, if you're doing blockchain analysis, you're lying to yourself and others. And I think people should seriously consider the, the what he's what he's getting at there which is that actually not only because of things like coins but because of things like what i just described things can be happening on the blockchain and you don't even know it that are actually breaking the history and all your assumptions about tracing coins could actually be quite quite invalid um even today even with ecdsa pub keys you can use two-party computation to do scriptless scripts so it doesn't even have to be waiting for schnorr and Lightning, of course, as well. You know, stuff is going on in Lightning, and you don't know about it. So, <laughs> yeah. So, do you think we'll get to a point where everybody's running these these privacy, or maybe not everybody, but enough people are running these privacy mechanisms to block uh, to to frustrate blockchain analysis, or do you think we'll get to a point where it's just so obvious that you know, um, you know, I've talked uh, about the to, to people about the idea of of mm-hmm. tainted coins, right? Where, 
which is kind of ridiculous in the sense that that every coin at some point is tainted. You know, like we mm-hmm. don't check dollar bills, and 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 when they do, like run them, like every twenty dollar bill has traces of cocaine on it. Do you think we'll get to a point where they just give up on uh, because they the the mainstream realizes that that everything is tainted, or do you think we'll we'll if we want privacy, we will still have to keep making these efforts and making, you know, striving forward and, and, and pushing the next thing. Yeah, it's thing. a difficult question. I'm, I'm really not sure. Um, I think it's worth observing that the, the current status quo is quite bad, but it's not so much bad because of the tech. Although, yeah, okay, the tech is, we don't have really good tech yet for privacy, but it's more bad just because of the way people use or rather don't use Bitcoin. I think um, the typical usage pattern for a lot of people is just, you know, take it, uh, buy it on an exchange uh, and either just like send it to a cold wallet. Well, obviously that's safe. If you're not going to use it, there's no issue, right? <laughs> or um, or they send it, to, you know, they start buying out coins and they, they send it from one, ex- ping it between one exchange and another and that's all they ever do. And the problem is, of course, all these exchanges are under increasing pressure to be totally KYC, AML, even, even way further than, than ordinary businesses. Uh, and so this, it's just completely irrelevant what kind of privacy tech you've got on, on your, on your coin, if that's all you're going to do, right? So the, 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 the real issue is, is like, if we start using Bitcoin in, in like peer to peer trade, I think people might be surprised the extent to which actually it's extremely difficult to, to keep track of it. To give an example, um, I think sometime in 2016, there was a message on the, Join market subreddit from a guy who had his, he was running some kind of exchange or some kind of smallish exchange or something. And he'd, um, he'd got stolen. He had stolen like 450 Bitcoin. And then, yeah, it was a large amount. But of course, at the time it was stolen. It was stolen like in 2015 when the price was very low. So it wasn't quite as large as you think. And he came on the join market subreddit or Bitcoin subreddit, I think, and said, Oh, can anybody help me trace these coins? And we all looked at, like where the coin started, where the hack happened, you know, and we, we said, oh, well, actually that's join market because it's pretty easy to identify join market because of these equal sized outputs, you know. Uh, and we said that's join market. And, but, but, you know, as far as I know, nobody was able to trace the final destination of those coins. And, you know, that's, that's, that's an anecdote. Um, but I think people just tend to assume that everything's easily traceable, whereas actually there's an awful lot of stolen coins that never got like pinged and, and usually usually people um, who get caught it's it's usually because of like off blockchain stuff you could call it metadata you know it's it's where they sold it on what exchange it's their name you know they bought a house whatever um, people occasionally occasionally you see stories of people getting like oh you know it, there's a court case and there's here's where the coins went on the blockchain and usually it's just because they didn't do anything at all they just sent it from their wallet to well, they, they withdrew it from an exchange to their wallet and then they sent it from their wallet to another exchange and then they, they expect it to be anonymous. <laughs> of course it isn't, right? Uh, you know, so, right. so what I want to try to get at is the long-term vision is very difficult to be sure what's going to happen in an optimistic scenario where Bitcoin is used as money and at least some of the tech that I describe is used by at least some of the people. I think, uh, it will be very, Difficult to create some kind of panopticon over the whole blockchain, but in the in the in the pessimistic scenario, people are just going to speculate with it, and and then it doesn't really matter how clever you get with the crypto; it's just uh, your name is attached, so that's that. 
Yeah. It's, yeah. it's hard to say. It's a good question, obviously, but I don't really know. Well, yeah, sure. I'm asking <laughs> you to predict the future. Yeah. That's not possible. Yeah. It was an impossible question. So, All right. Well, Adam, how can people keep up with you in, um, in the work that you're doing? Well, if, um, my name is uh, Waxwing on IRC free mode and, um, uh, and on Reddit. Well, I don't use Reddit too much nowadays. Uh, I'm also Waxwing with two underscores on Twitter. And I'm Adam ISZ on GitHub just to be different. Uh, so that's, that's that really. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, are there needs? Uh, oh, I should, I should mention my, my blog as well. Um, I, I, I update it extremely erratically, sometimes three times in one day and sometimes not for six months, but <laughs> it's a uh, joint. It's joinmarket.me <laughs> or it's each HTTPS, uh, joinmarket.me and it's slash blog should, should, I hope take you there. Yeah. Okay. But mm. while you mentioned GitHub, then, um, are, are there needs within join market? You know, I, I always liked it when I, when I have someone on that's doing a, a open source project like this, I like to mm. just kind of air out like, Hey, we need this or that, or, or we're looking to expand this or whatever. Do you guys have active, you know, issues that you're wanting to work on that people can come yeah, up with? Yeah, or? there's, um, there's, there's lots of need to, to improve. I mean, there's loads of areas that it needs improvement, maybe like Python three upgrade is one. Um, so I guess anyone who's got good Python skills might want to, if you've got time and you might want to get involved and, um, it may need this. Well, actually, there's a to-do list. That's a good thought. There's a to-do list in the docs uh, directory, and if you read that to-do.md, maybe maybe it'll give you some ideas on how to contribute. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, we can include that as well in the show notes. So thanks. Um, That's great. Yeah. Bottomshelfbitcoin.com/slash/twenty-five. Everybody. And um, anything else you want to say before we? No, that was great. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. All right, Bottom Shelfers, that's going to do it for our show today. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode. We're on iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, You can just follow the RSS feed, however you like. Um, Share the episode with your friends and families and uh, those people that you annoy because you're a Bitcoiner and they're not. And uh, (laughs) make sure to give us a good review on iTunes and Stitcher and whatever other rating systems there are that helps other people find the podcast. And then that helps me. If you, uh, if you want to support the show, uh, I've got Bitcoin donations through a paynim address that's on the website. And, um, I've also got a BTC pay donation page set up there as well. And, uh, if you want to use Fiat, you can use Patreon. You can do one time or monthly, uh, payments through that and uh, let's see what else uh, Tuttle Twins books uh, bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash kids book I've got a link there and then whatever you uh, purchase from the Tuttle Twins site I get a chunk back from that so that's really appreciated and you know you're getting a great book from there so uh, yeah follow me on social media bottomshelfbtc on twitter and Instagram, and then I'm also on uh, Mastodon, uh, I'm bottom shelf BTC at bitcoinhackers.org. And then I'm also, 
I'm catching up on getting my episodes up on YouTube. I saw someone saying that they appreciated some of these podcasts being, some audio podcasts being up on YouTube so that they could use the translate feature. So uh, I am working to get my back episodes. I had a couple that I hadn't gotten up on YouTube yet. So I'm working to get all those caught up. So uh, yeah, if you, uh, if you're, if you're an international person and that's something you appreciate, let me know. Uh, that helps me know how I can help you. Help me help you. Help me help you. Anyways. Okay. And I guess that's going to do it for our, for our time together this week. Uh, make sure and tune in again next week. And uh, I will see you then. From Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, I'm Josh Humphrey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>